0: If you've been with us this fall, you know that we spend every fall working our way through the Old Testament, which is one long, awesome, epic saga of story after story. And when we read through in our Bibles, it's not always clear, the chronology, so we're trying to tell the story in order. And last week, we heard the story of the ancient Hebrew people demanding a king. They hadn't had one before, and they said, we need one. Although this was not God's original intention for them, and God warned them what would happen in their society if they got a king, they insisted that they needed one. So God allowed them to have a king. The first king was Saul, whose only qualifications for the job really were that he was tall and handsome. It's true. The second king of Israel was someone who was chosen not for his stature and good looks, but because he had the potential to lead the people in a way that honored their covenant with God. And that person was David, who is mentioned more times by name in the Bible than anyone else, including Jesus. And after years of fighting with King Saul, David finally becomes king. And this morning's story takes place right after David has unified all 12 of the tribes and won two battles with the Philistines, who were the archenemies of the ancient Hebrew people. After winning these battles, David consolidates his military and his political power in the newly captured city of Jerusalem, so it's neutral territory for the north and the south. And then he begins looking for a way to also emotionally unify the people. He decides to do this by bringing an ancient religious symbol to his new city. So he sets out to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant, as in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Which has been stored at the home of this one family for at least 20 years. And that's where today's story begins. And this morning, instead of hearing the whole story at once from some readers, I'm going to read a little and explain a little and then read a little and explain a little because there's a lot going on. So this morning's story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. David gathered all the elite soldiers of Israel, 30,000 men total. David and all the people with him set out for Baal-Judah. To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Uhi Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the cart that the ark of God was on, and Ahio was walking in front of the cart. And David and all of the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So let's pause here for a little bit more context. Since we aren't the original audience for this story, there's some important historical and cultural things that we are going to miss. First of all, a little refresher on the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of God was a big box that god instructed the ancient hebrews to build while they were still wandering around in the desert after they left slavery in egypt it was designed to be a tangible reminder that god's presence was traveling with them that they worshiped a god that could not be contained and was always on the move It held the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, and it was covered by a lid that was carved with a statue of two angels, the cherubim. The only way to transport the ark was to have some priests carry it on poles, and when the ark was handled properly, it took a lot of time. And it required the people to remember that they had received direction about this from God, from the God who hovers above the lid and is not contained in the box. The Ark was an icon, which is a visible, tangible reminder of God's presence. Icons are designed to remind us that God's power is all around us and not under our control. Now, the religious objects of the nations around these people These other religious objects were idols, which is different than an icon. So an icon reminds us of God's presence. An idol is a physical object which people believed contains the actual spirit and power of the God. And idols are actually way more useful to us than icons. Because with idols, we think we know where the power is located. We can set it up where we want to, we can handle it the way we want to, and we can feel confident that this power is contained in a specific spot and we can come visit it when we want to. We love to be in control. And we think that we can manipulate or anticipate what God is going to do or what God can do or will do when we have an idol because it just stays in one spot. In the Bible, idolatry is the sin that people fall into most often, this desire to control God. And the ancient Hebrew people fell very easily into the habits and the customs of the nations around them. And all those nations had idols, so eventually the Hebrew people start treating their icon, their ark, like it's an idol. So that's the Ark. Second, why is the Ark at Abinadab's house instead of being at the place of worship where you would expect it to be? Well, because 20 years before our story takes place, even before Saul was king, the ancient Hebrews were in another battle against the Philistines. It's always the Philistines. And the Hebrews are losing this battle. So they decide to go get the Ark out of their place of worship And take it with them into battle. They remembered that the Ark had been present at some of their great military victories in the past, like the fall of Jericho. But they forgot that in those situations, God had told them to carry the Ark with them into battle. And this time is different, because they just decide, oh, this is what's going to work, we'll go get the Ark. Without any instruction from God, what happens is that they decide to use the ark like a superstitious weapon. They decide to use it like an idol, the way the Philistines use their gods. They thought, oh, we'll go get the power of God, it'll just come with the ark, and that'll bring us luck, and we'll win our battle. But they lose, and the Philistines take the ark. But the ark is not lucky for the Philistines either. Everywhere the ark goes in Philistine territory, the people get sick and they experience plagues. And so finally they're like, we've had enough of this. So they put the ark on a cart pulled by cows. Sound familiar to the beginning? And they just let it go and send it back to Israel. And the Israelites who find this ark pulled by cows... Uh, They also treat it disrespectfully, and they suffer some deadly consequences, and so they want to get rid of it too, so they send it off again. And it finally winds up at the house of this guy named Abinadab, and he says, my sons and I will care for the ark, we will honor it in the way it's supposed to be. And so it stays there for 20 years at least, somewhere between 20 and 60, we're not really sure. They just leave it alone at this guy's house. Until David decides, I'm going to take it to my new city. Now, David is a really complicated character in the Bible. On the one hand, bringing the ark to Jerusalem is a very calculated political move. He is trying to get the conservatives on board with his new government by bringing religion and politics into the same city. But... Everything we've seen about David so far also indicates that he genuinely loves God and has a sincere desire to follow God's ways. So is it one? Is it the other? Is it both? You get to decide. The problem in this situation seems to be that just like 20 years before, when the Israelites take the ark into battle without consulting God, David doesn't slow down long enough to ask God for direction. Before he goes to get the ark. There's no discernment here. There's just David acting on some good intentions. And even when we have good intentions, acting without taking time to discern first is foolish, isn't it? David doesn't follow the guidelines for handling the ark. Remember, those guidelines were designed to remind people that they were handling something that symbolized God's presence but it was not a power they could control. And David doesn't follow any of those guidelines. He takes soldiers instead of priests. He puts the ark on a cart instead of having it carried the way it was supposed to be. He transports it in the open instead of covering it. In short, David handles the ark the way the other nations handle their idols. He assumes that by physically controlling the ark, he's controlling God's power. And acting without discerning is not only foolish, sometimes it's dangerous. So we shouldn't be surprised when something goes really wrong. So let's pick up 2nd Samuel chapter 6 verses 6 through 11. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who's one of the guys walking with the ark, reaches out his hand to steady the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the Ark of the Lord come into my care? David was unwilling to take the Ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the Ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, this is the really troubling part of the passage, isn't it? but we don't skip the hard things in the Bible. What we need to remember is that this description of what happens is consistent with how the ancient Hebrew people viewed God. All ancient people everywhere believed that gods were always the active agents in anything that seems outside human control. And they don't have any other explanation for what happens here didn't this guy do a good thing by stopping the ark from falling off the cart? Maybe. But the point is that if David, as the leader, had carefully considered this trip in the first place, this would never have happened. We wouldn't even have this situation. David was doing things the way he wanted to do them instead of the way that was guaranteed to remind the people of God's love and God's presence with them. And something about this tragedy winds up being really clarifying for David. It reminds him who God really is. What we see here is that the ever-present God is alive again in this situation. God has been silent and not active in the story so far. The ark has just been a magic box or an important relic or an idol. But in this moment, David realizes again what he really has and it makes him reconsider his actions. David and the people had not taken the actual God into account, but they have to now. The tragedy makes it very clear to David that he has not fully considered this project, and the reality of it comes crashing down on him, and he's angry, and he's scared. And anger is usually the emotion we use to cover up our fear, isn't it? And we blame it on God. So David abandons his plan. He abandons the ark at the house of a man who, ironically, is probably a Philistine. We don't really know who this person is or why David takes the ark to him. Maybe his house is just on the way. But the story says that this foreigner receives blessing from God because he's caring for the ark. It's another reminder that God is not always going to act in the ways that we expect. This whole section of the story, this middle section... It's just full of mystery and the ambiguity that we experience as human beings on this earth. Why things happen, what God is doing. So we have some choices. We can try to explain it away, or we can only accept what we're comfortable with or what benefits us. Or we can sit with it in all of its complexity and all of its mystery, and be okay with the fact that we don't understand it yet. And we can know that we don't sit in that mystery by ourselves. So let's read the last part of the story. It was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went. And brought the ark of God from the house of obed edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark had gone six paces, David sacrificed an ox and a calf. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord up with shouting and with the sound of the shofar trumpet. They brought in the ark of God and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, because there's no temple at this point. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And then all the people went back to their homes. So, after months of waiting, David decides to try to bring the ark to Jerusalem again. But this time, he changes a few important things. His last experience with the ark has stayed with him, and he's given it some thought. So, this time, the text says that people are carrying the ark. We assume they're doing it the way they're supposed to this time. And David is dressed as a priest. He's supposed to be priests carrying the ark, he's making sacrifices. They seem a little bit over the top, but he's trying to do things the right way this time. He's still dancing, but this time instead of the whole orchestra, they just have the traditional shofar, which was the instrument that they used in worship and at their important times. And apparently these differences are enough because the ark makes it to the city where it's installed in a tent and commemorated with sacrifices. And David is able to bless the people in the name of God. This is a huge moment, not just for David, but for all of Israel. The text is clear that everybody is included in this celebration. Men and women are both blessed. Everyone is fed. And it hasn't been a smooth journey, but the ark is once again in the center of Israel's religious life, which really is where it should be, reminding God's people that they follow a God who is present with them and provides for them, the Lord of hosts enthroned on the cherubim, enthroned on the angels above the ark, the true king of Israel, the defender of foreigners. So, Pastor Beth, what is the point of this Old Testament story? (laughs) Well, as always, there could be plenty of points. But this morning, I would like for us to really think about the cautionary tale of how we treat the holy things in our lives. Are we treating the holy things in our lives like they're no big deal? Do we come to worship like it's just another thing that happens in our week? Do we read our prayers and sing our songs like they're just words on a page or on the screen? Or do we come here with a sense of anticipation, really trusting that in this place, with these people, through these holy texts and songs and prayers, we could actually encounter the presence of the God whose name we can't even speak. When we say that our faith is the most important thing to us, that we wanna put God first in our families, Is that obvious from our daily lives, from the way we spend our time and our money? Lest you think I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me. When we make decisions, are we practicing discernment? Are we taking the time, or are we just going off our good intentions? What about our bodies? These temples of the Holy Spirit and image bearers of God, are we treating them as holy? Are we treating ourselves and one another with reverence and gratitude and honor? Are we allowing ourselves to rest? Are we eating well? Are we treating the people around us like they're resources to be used or are we honoring their individuality and their ability to reveal God to us? And when we make not great choices, Are we surprised by the results (laughs) and getting angry and blaming God? Because we have a tendency to do that, don't we? Now, we don't want to go overboard with this story to the point of being afraid that God is going to smite us for every little mistake. That's not healthy, and it's not a fair representation of God. This story is the culmination of years of unhealthy patterns in the lives of the Israelites. And as we discussed last week... A lot of times what we see in the Bible as God's wrath is God giving us over to the natural consequences of our choices. So if we make really bad choices, we shouldn't be all that shocked or mad at God when things don't go well for us. And if it's hard to hear that, think about yourself saying it to maybe your kids or a really good friend that you're like, what are you doing over and over? I know you probably don't have any friends like that. I I don't either, but <laughs> this story is another reminder to us that it is always a good time for repentance. And that word has been co-opted and misused in our culture, but I think we should reclaim it. Because it simply means to think again. It means to turn around and go the other way, to change direction. And that is God's perpetual redemptive invitation to us. No matter what we are currently in the middle of, we can always think again. There is nothing that we have done or that has been done to us that God cannot redeem. God's love and God's grace is always being extended to us, constantly, all the time. The holy is just waiting for us to take notice and to shape our lives in ways that reflect the reality that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Amen.